Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. And we had a little bit of all of that this week, uh, mostly from the fights. I'm Robert Winfrey. I'm your host for this evening. And whenever you happen to be listening, thank you very much for tuning in, however you happen to be finding us. Uh, be that, you know, Apple Music, Google Play, YouTube, the 411 Mania uh, sorry, Foreign Mania website. I think we're on Podcoin now, too, which should really give a try if you're in the market for that because you get rewards for listening to podcasts. So instead of having to suffer for free, you can get, you know, Amazon gift cards and the like. So give that a give that a look and see if you haven't. And I don't say that just to try and bolster our numbers. I mean, don't get me wrong, it helps. But hey, if I can give you guys a little bit of a reward apart from my stunning insight, frequently not insightful nor stunning, uh, want to give you a hand. Uh, should be a relatively straightforward show. Just a review of UFC 241, which is a pretty darn great card, actually. Uh, not a whole lot of news this week, so we'll see what happens or if anything crazy breaks between now and then, because that happens. Uh, back with me, as usual, my regular partner in crime, 411 Mania's jack-of-all-trades, Jeff Harris, is once again here. Jeff, nice to have you. How you doing? My name is Jeffrey Harris, and I don't make emotional decisions. It's a good policy not to. Uh, emotional decisions tend to be bad. Un, 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 unless they're good. Yeah, but again, if you're going to play the odds, they tend not to be... You tend to make more bad decisions emotionally than good ones. Except when they're good emotional decisions. Well, sure, but again, how often do you come across those? I don't know. I've never had a good emotional sure decision. Happened. I'm sure it's happened at some point. Anyone out there, if you've ever made a really good, purely emotional decision, uh, congratulations. Feel free to let us know about it. Uh, What Jeff is referring to stems from the main event from last night, so let's go ahead and jump into that. UFC 241. Uh, In your main event, you know, I can get a little bit, I'm going to be a bit picky about this fight, but I do want to say, first and foremost, great fight. Uh, Stipe Miocic, boy howdy, uh, stops Daniel Cormier with punches four minutes and nine seconds of the fourth round. Not completely unexpected, you know. We had to acknowledge that an outcome like this was possible. Yeah. I mean, I think we both picked Cormier, but we both also said, hey, here's how Stipe can win. And then after 15 minutes of fighting... Not very well. I, I shouldn't say not very well. I mean, tactically not the, very well. He lost the first three rounds. I think I gave him the second, but it was iffy. You can be 3-0 Cormier, and I wouldn't argue with you at all. He was losing the fight up, un- up until he, he, he adjusted his game plan. He did something different. He didn't adapt uh, the same strategy he had been using up until that point. He found something that worked. He exploited it. He exploited an opening. And he just didn't try to just lose an underwhelming decision. He tried to win the fight. He knew he was down. And he changed things around to find a way to win. Which a lot of fighters can learn these days. It's an, inc- it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, and there's a reason that guys at the highest level are 
able to do it. That's not a coincidence. I mean, how often, Robert, do we see a g- fighters at this level when they're down this much make an adjustment and win and win back a fight that they're losing on the scorecards? It does not happen that often. No, it's it's again, it's a rarity. It's a very very hard thing to do. Some of the very best fighters in the world are struggle with making real time adjustments. The absolute best. Yeah. yeah, the again, the absolute best are you know that part hurts of their your feelings because you're a big Yoel Romero fan, but I'm sorry. No, look, Romero and Costa had a really engaging fight, but they were both stupid. There was a lot of stuff to really get kind of critical about in that. Last fight. night was a very high level heavyweight contest. It's probably one of the the best heavyweight fights in terms of technique, strategy. That we'll ever see at this level. And just in terms of skill level and also cardio, because both guys were clearly, you know, tired. But considering how we see some heavyweight uh, heavyweights fighting, how they're already gassing or gasping for air after five minutes, Cormier and Miocic did pretty well for themselves last night in terms of the cardio game. Yeah, I, I tend to think it was partially cardio that led to Cormier's downfall in this fight. But, well, especially if you look at the fourth round, I think it was the fourth. But I mean, look, when you get hit in the abdomen like he was. Even before that. Still, when it's going to hurt. It's going to exacerbate, you know, your ga- you know, losing your gas tank. Oh, again, he was already, I mean, they were both tiring. And in fairness, I right. given the size of those two. But Cormier's... But they were tiring late in the fourth rather than after the first. Yeah. Again, very, I'm not complaining about uh, the cardio that these two guys showed. They fought at a high pace for guys, their size too. Like that was Um, for heavyweights. That was a really high pace. I'll tell you what I saw. Daniel Cormier had a great first round. Had it, had it looked like he had very fast hands, very tight defense. Picked uh, Stipe up and basically did uh, what do you what you call it a beach break like a Death Valley driver F five big slam really he really hurt Stipe with that ground and pound that ground and pound did a lot of damage he almost had he been able to you know keep that pace up he probably could have finished Stipe in the first um, with those hammer fists those elbows and then. In the second round, I don't know if this was his cardio or not, but he started putting his hands down. Uh, he lowered his defense, and it looked like he was more trying to dodge Stipe's punches, and he was, I don't know if he, he fell in love with this, kind of did the stand and bang, or stand and wang, as the MMA fans call it. And uh, it worked for a while up until round four because Stipe was landing throughout the fight. Cormier's chin really held up fairly well, but it really wasn't his chin that lost him the fight. It was that body work. He, Stipe found a left hook to the abdomen, continued using it. Daniel let him continue getting away with it, and it, and it clearly hurt him. And that gave Stipe an opening to finish him off and win the fight. And 
Body shots, I've said before, they don't always look effective, but when you land good body shots, they are probably one of the most effective techniques in the sport. And MMA fighters, Robert, tend to headhunt. A lot. They tend to headhunt a lot, but effective body work, I think in many ways, is almost better than just trying to score that one-punch knockout. It is. I mean, it unequivocally is. Unless you're... Body work last night in the fourth round is basically what directly led to Stipe being able to stop Cormier. Or am I wrong? No, that's that's absolutely what did it. I mean, there's a reason we said when we were previewing this, one of the things Cor- uh, Miocic needs to do as an avenue of attack is go to the body because Cormier has a history of being a little bit soft there. Again, Jones had a fa- uh, her- Jones didn't really ever hurt him badly, but to the He's body, but he... Guy. He's a thick, chunky guy. He's stocky. He's been that way his whole career, but few have ever really kind of exploited it the way Stipe did last night. Well, the only effective thing Anderson Silva did in their whole fight was a front kick to the body that actually got that pretty visibly hurt uh, Cormier in their fight from, I believe, UFC 200. Yeah. Uh, again, some of those shots did work, but Cormier's chin held up fairly well. It wasn't like it didn't look old and old and slow and like a living corpse like BJ Penn does now. No, he was, he yeah. was very, I mean, again, there's an argument. He was up three rounds to none. He was certainly up in the fight. All things considered, all things considered, he looked like prime Daniel, right? Uh, last night. He looked eh. like DC. Not prime, but he did not look out of place against the best heavyweight the UFC's ever had. I mean, considering he wasn't able to beat John Jones, to me, it looked like the same Daniel we saw lose to John Jones. Didn't he? Didn't look radically worse. No, no. He he is again. I think if you were to really dissect the nuances of his performance going back like five years, you'd see differences that have slowed a little bit, but nothing radical. This is the first time he ever lost at heavyweight, right? Yep. So I mean, and you can say you can say he never was a legitimate light heavyweight champion, but he never he had never lost at heavyweight before this. He pursued a career at light heavyweight because he did not want to interfere with Cain Velasquez and because his friend and training partner was at the time still the top dog. And he that that is what put that was one of the reasons that pushed him to go make a move down to light heavyweight, which Let's be honest, when he came into the UFC, we were not like we heard talk of him maybe moving down, but it seemed unrealistic. Very unrealistic because of his time in the Olympics. He yeah, he had, yeah. He had a history of bad weight. I mean, that's why he ne- that's why he was not able to compete in his yeah. second Olympic Games. Exactly. His body shut down due to his weight cutting. And, and I mean, he was a dominant heavyweight. He won the Strike Force Grand Prix. He won his early UFC fights at heavyweight. He was a top contender. I mean, he lost a... I don't think he had lost a round at heavyweight. Uh, Certainly not for a a very long time. And again, I haven't seen literally every one of his fights. But I don't remember, even on the Strikeforce Challenger series, him losing too many rounds, even. But I mean, look. I mean, his heavyweight career alone is, is enough to get him a spot in the Hall of Fame. He's still one of the best ever. He's an easy he's an easy Hall of Fame entry. Easy first ballot. Yeah, absolutely. 
Easily one of the greatest ever. Yeah. What did, I, what did you see? What did you see in there in in the Stipe Miocic rematch? I want to hear what you have to say. I think what I found is the more I've thought about this, the more is probably the more disturbing thing. If I'm talking about Cormier's potential longevity continuing to go forward, Cormier was not stopped from doing what he normally does to be successful. And if, again, if you watch the, uh, his fights with John Jones, Jones does a couple of things to deliberately take away the conditions that Cormier usually establishes to be successful in a fight. Some of that's pressure. Some of that's uh, hand fighting. Some of that's a half collar tie, his wrestling game, all those things that he normally needs to establish to be successful. John deliberately takes them away from him and says, okay, what's your plan B? And he doesn't really have a tremendously nuanced plan B. So John was able to find more openings, to pick at him, to set things up, etc. Here, Stipe doesn't really stop him from doing what he wants to do in the traditional sense of how he likes to fight. He likes forward pressure. He likes grabbing kind of half-collar ties whenever you get close enough. He likes grabbing for single legs if necessary. Keeping a high volume of punches coming at your face. And just kind of breaking you down by outgrinding you and outworking you. And... He was able to do all of that. Stipe didn't stop him from doing that stuff. It just was not as effective as it has been in the past against other opposition. Uh, he got, I mean, he got the half-collar tie, which he uses a lot. If you watch a lot of Cormier's fights, anytime they get close, he gets to that position explicitly because he can work punches, he can hand fight, he can transition to go after a single leg when you get overzealous trying to fight or you're up against the cage in a bad position. And he got that a lot. He was able to keep a high volume. Uh, he punched Stipe in the face a lot. Stipe got hit, <laughs> again, a lot. His face was very visibly busted up. It just wasn't able to deter Stipe from continuing to fight the same way that that same kind of reality deterred, you know, Derek Brunson, uh, not Derek Brunson, Derek Lewis from fighting or deterred Alexander Gustafson as their fight kind of went on in some ways, or made Volkan Uzdemir absolutely miserable. I mean, any other example you can think of. And that, to me, is kind of the more troubling aspect, because when someone takes away your primary conditions for victory and you lose... That's kind of to be ex that, that's kind of to be expected, even amongst the very best. At the post-fight press conference, Daniel Cormier said, "Wait, wait am I saying it wrong? Is it Cormier or Cormier?" Uh, Cormier. He has kind Cormier. of a French history. Cormier. Yeah, because he's from Louisiana. Yeah. Okay, so Cormier was at the post-fight press conference. He said his corner was instructing him to wrestle, take him down. Sure. Do more what he did in the first round, but he felt because he was having some success stand, um, in the stand-up, and he was doing damage to Stipe standing up, he decided to just keep doing that, and he said he fell in love with that. We've seen wrestlers do that before, and, you know, I, I get it's a slippery slope because wrestlers, you know, their best attribute is usually their wrestling. Some are able to develop their striking skills and develop knockout power or, or 
knockout ability. They fall in love with that. People call it Stan and Wang or whatever. Um, but pe- it's weird because people complain about when wrestlers wrestle in a fight, you know? And then they also complain when a wrestler tries to be a stand-up fighter. And Daniel was trying to fight more of a stand-up fight when apparently his corner wanted him to wrestle more. Um, I don't know if that would have made a difference, though, Robert. It depends on how successful he, he would wind up being with it because, he, I mean, he got the big slam in the first round, but after that... Uh, he was not very active pursuing takedowns, and the ones he tried, Stipe stopped him. So it's not like he completely no, abandoned it on principle. Stipe got one takedown during the fight, but not not much happened with it, as I recall. No, nah, it was like right, I think, towards the end of the third. Right. Um, do you think, I know this is a big if, but had... Daniel been more aggressive with his wrestling approach that might have altered the complexion of the fight. I mean, by definition, it would have. I I'm not sure. It's a little bit unclear to me, given how good a wrestler both guys are, how much it would have altered elements of the outcome, just based on because again, the big thing for me in the fourth round, and this was very clear right from the start was that Cormier, his legs were not under him properly anymore in the fourth round. Watch his footwork if you rewatch the fight. When he gets to the fourth round, he stops doing... I mean, look, one of the very basic fundamentals of footwork, he stops doing it. He starts bringing his feet together and then stepping out. So he's standing, uh, you know, orthodox. He brings his right foot up to his left and then steps his left foot where he wants it to go. That is a giant no-no, technically. Do you, but do you agree that, you know, Daniel, for a guy with his size and shape, he can move his hands pretty well? He has, yeah, he has fast hands. Especially because, you know, Stipe has height, reach advantage. And he was closing the distance early on in the fight pretty well. I, Other than the fact that he was keeping his hands down most of the time after the first round. Some of that's also just his defensive posture. He doesn't do the traditional hands up, uh, you know, kind of around your face thing. He does what's lar- what's referred to as a mummy guard. He, Whenever he gets close enough, he extends his hands all the way out, and it allows him to very easily disrupt punching lanes. It allows him to stop your jab from getting where it's supposed to go, lets him parry easier, lets him kind of shoulder roll to the extent that he does it, to get down behind his arms, and then puts him in decent position to counter, to slap your hands aside and close distance further if he wants to. I don't think there was an eye poke, but apparent it looked like Stipe at one point was complaining about like damage to his eye, which oh he got poked in the eye in the did he second round yeah I okay. I, re- I remember seeing it clear as day when they're they're disengaging Stipe gets poked and starts backing up the ref doesn't see the poke so Cormier keeps coming after him punching him and Stipe hits a really nice right uppercut actually that kind of jacks Cormier's head up is that you know when an eye poke happens it. It'll usually go by so quickly you might miss it. Yeah, there's a lot that I don't see all the time. That one I remember seeing. And then there was a weird call last night where I think someone might have gotten an eye poke, but then they waited like 20 minutes to call a timeout on the foul. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot that gets chalked up kind of to referee's discretion as far as timing of fouls goes. And it's like weird. the referee, like he was he was favoring his eye, but the referees like keep fighting, and then and then he keeps bothering him. And I don't know. I I would like there to be more firmly established guidelines and protocols for stuff so, like that. So elephant in the room. Should Daniel Cormier uh, Cormier retire now? Oof. If I, I mean, again, if I'm him, I might. I mean, and I say that just because, you know, what's he got to prove, by and large? Nothing. He's one of the best ever. He's one of the like three best ever. I think he surpassed Anderson Silva. He held, he held a heavyweight and light heavyweight belt at the same time. He defended sure. both of them. He beat the most successful UFC heavyweight champion ever. I mean, he he and Stipe are one and one. Like that that did not happen. You know, this loss doesn't erase that reality. He bet he beat Stipe clean. That's yeah. that's still a thing. And he's, he's one of the all time greats. He's the first man to hold two belts and then and then defend a belt. Uh, only only. Only two legit career losses. The second Jones was a no contest. So technically, he's only lost twice in his career. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's an abs- he, again, he has an absurd win loss record, especially given the op- level of opposition he faced for almost all well, of it. Before this fight, he jinxed it. He did whatever every fighter tends to do. He jinxed himself by talking about the trilogy fight with John Jones. Media is also at fault for that because that's what the media tends to do. They try to line up the super fight when it's not there because that's the fight they want. Um, and he said he wants to he wants to choose the way he goes out. I mean, the unfortunate part is almost no fighter gets to do that, Robert. Well. They all get to choose, but unless they do what BJ Penn does and get to the point where they should be regulated out of the sport, well, you do get you do get to choose in the sense that you know there's no gun to your head to force you to continue fighting or to right. get you out of the cage. Right. But, but it's almost never on the terms you think it's going to be. Right. Like a fighter almost never gets to go out on the terms he wants to go out on, and get like that storybook, picture perfect ending, or. When or they, they get it and then three years later decide they're coming out of retirement. Or they get it, or they get it, and then they, you know, it's like, I'm I'm still winning, I'm gonna keep, I won, I'll keep fighting. You know? And, ju- I mean, just think about this, Robert. How much just drama we would have avoided had, had Silva, Vanderlei Silva just retired after the fight with Brian Stan, we yep. would have been none the wiser, you know? There's a lot of stuff that could have been avoided. And then, and then but no, he, we had to have the grudge match with Chael Sonnen and all that nonsense. And just ended, it ended badly for everyone. The fans, Vanderlei Silva, the UFC, Vanderlei Silva's legacy, it just became a huge mess. It was a mess a few years. It was a mess 
That's what, two years ago when they actually did have the Sonnen and Silva fight? Peter Ortiz, as embarrassing as his career was, he should have just retired after the fight with Ryan Bader. Ah, uh, but if he'd retired after the Bader fight, he never would have got that big win over Chuck Liddell. <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's tough. I'm not saying he should, because look, he looked good. He looked good last night. He looked at 40. He looked better than a lot of fighters in their 20s, Robert. You know. Yep. yep. So I'm not saying he should retire, and and this the decision is ultimately up to him, and and he should take his time and really think about it, talk it over with his family, his team, and whatnot. Take his take a vacation. Don't worry about it right now. You know. Um. But I think he should, because if he comes back, it would have to be for a rematch with Stipe Miocic, don't you think? I think that's the most. I think that trilogy fight with Miocic is probably where they would want to do. It's now they're one and one. But before this fight, everyone was thinking about a John Jones trilogy fight, even though he he's never been able to beat John Jones. But why? But 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 like why? Because if he loses, he loses again. He gets hurt more. He takes more damage. He can just stop it now. He can just stave off any of the damage he would get from a rematch training, and he has his legacy is intact at this point. Losing this fight does not destroy his legacy. Losing even losing this fight he lost last night. He is still one of the he has built one of the best legacies the sport has ever seen in history. Yep. So legacies when you're when you're a fighter at Daniel's level and when you when, when you're Daniel's age, legacy is, is so important. So his legacy is intact based on everything he said in interviews financially he is well off his family is well off he has opportunities outside the cage he can pursue in broadcast and broadcasting coaching he can still be a part of the sport he just won't be fighting so he can still be a part and around the sport um for years to come and will be like an elder statesman so it's not like he's leaving or going away he's still a part of of everything he's just not fighting, uh, competing anymore, which he said he planned on doing anyway once he turned 40. So, and the other, the, here's the other issue. It's not going to get easier at this point. And, and that for, for some fighters and athletes, that's not a thing. Maybe they're only challenged more when it gets harder. But from a physical standpoint, um, you know, can, when you think about long-term concussion damage, it's only going to get even worse from here. So I'm thinking about that. There's no point in putting himself through that anymore. Just, I think he need, it's time for him to enjoy the fruits of his labor and ride off into the sunset because it's a gamble. Whenever you, whenever you fight, it's a gamble, Robert, and the risks are just going to get much higher from here on out. And he has gambled a lot in his career, and he has come out of it on the other side 
platinum in ways that few fighters will ever reach. So I I don't I just don't see why he ha- I see no reason to gamble any further at this point with what he's because he's accomplished so much. You know, get out time to get out of the race. Get out of the, the, the race, right off into the sunset, and you have nothing and he has nothing to be ashamed of. Not a darn thing. I mean again, the only guy to beat him at heavyweight is the best that is the best heavyweight in UFC history and champion and the only man who defend who defended the title three times. So it's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, I mean again, Stipe Miocic is the best heavyweight champion the UFC's ever had. Right. Just period. Yeah. And he's got the best body of work. Arguably It's hard it's very, very hard to argue that he's not the best heavyweight of all time, period. But I mean I think what, what probably haunts Daniel is he wants that. That's probably what haunts Daniel. And Almost that, certain, again, anyone who's as pathologically competitive as professional fighters at that level are, yeah, it's going to. You know? Because he can't I I'm sure because it haunts him that he can never claim that he's the greatest light heavyweight of all time. Because he can't. He can't. He's the second. He's the clear second, but he is the second. Um, now, I, I would say at heavyweight, you could say he's one of the top five, probably. Maybe top two. Top three. Top three. Almost certainly top three. Right. I, str- I have a really hard time finding a, again, like three but better guess, heavyweights than it him. It hurts him that he can't be one. Yeah. It, again, when you're as... Again, fighters like that are competitive, especially someone like Cormier, who's been a competitor his entire life. It's I I don't say pathological as a pejorative. I say it because I think it's the most accurate descriptor. I mean, mean, he talked as well about how rough it was on him that the Olympics were taken away from him. And his, his Olympic wrestling career did not go the way he wanted it to. And he finished, I think, fourth his first games and was favored to medal in the he might have been favored for gold right. the second time around. But he had just to, he had to drop out. And yeah, his health issues just wouldn't let him. So but that probably also drove him to have the great MMA career he did. So life works out in funny ways sometimes. Yeah, it does. So uh, with all the respect in the world for Daniel he can really do whatever he wants, but I think it is a. I think it would be for the. He does. I. I would say he doesn't have to retire. I just think it would be for the best if he did. Because yeah, I don't I, see him become like the Anderson Silvas of the world, or Vanderlei, or Tito. Yeah. Not that he would. Not that he would if he continued fighting. But. I. You know what? What? Why even open yourself up to that opportunity? It makes no sense. Yeah, again, if he does, and I, I think that part of the key thing there is, if he does come back, the only real fight I think that people would, that they'd try to make is a rematch with Stipe. And, okay, but uh, let's, say, let's say he does that and he wins, then what do you get? Yeah, that's, that's kind of the big, that would be the, you know, the million dollar question is, okay, I won, but... 
because look, that could, I mean, look, that could go, that could go well into next year. And then you're st- people are still going to be talking about John Jones. And then he's suddenly what, forty two? Uh, Jones is forty one now. Jones? Yeah, he's forty now. So yeah, he'd be around forty two. But I mean, but my point is that's how long it takes for fights to materialize. Sometimes. Yeah. Especially I mean, big Stipe, fights that require a lot of prep work. Stipe was not. Uh, Stipe was not about uh, to turn thirty seven. When, um, when the first fight happened, you know, it takes long, it takes a long time for fights to come together is my point. Um, it's not like, it's not like, you know, pro wrestling where you can book the rematch the next night, you know? Um, I mean, even in, even in combat sports that have mandatory rematches like that, uh, boxing, for example, it still takes time. Like, I mean, I'm just thinking long term. You know, you know, because look, he said he he said he wanted to retire at forty. He can still do that. Yeah, he is forty. He could. That is the thing he could still do. And again, he's got a lot of options outside the cage to make money. He's a really, you know, his his style of commentary doesn't always jive with what I'm interested in from a commentator. But he's good at it. That like objectively, he's good. He's good at he's good at the the the. The I think the analyst duties, not necessarily the the color. Like he can do the analyst work too. And he does. He's like one of three people they have that do the what is it the dissected thing on ESPN Plus. Right. And I mean he's it's like him, Kobe Bryant, and Peyton Manning. They all stick to their respective sports. But his ability to communicate and his insight in places like that is not fabricated. He coaches. He has, he has his own students. He coaches kids in high school. He, he's got plenty. He can keep himself busy with, you know, it's not like, I don't feel like he, once he retires, I don't feel like it would be as bad as what's happened with BJ. Yeah. I, I agree with that. So do we think the rematch between Stipe Miocic and Francis and Ganu goes any differently? I think it will go slightly differently, but I'm still I would still pick Stipe in a rematch. I I only ask that because I think Francis is the only contender they've got right now. Uh, everyone else is either coming off of losses or. I mean, at the moment, yeah. That's unless unless the only other the only other possibility is if Jones wants to go up and they yeah. offer him a title shot, because. They they could still do that. I mean, look. Before, I think before Daniel moved up, I think the talk was of Jones going up to fight Stipe when yeah. Stipe was having his big run. Yeah, that's a fight that's been talked about in the background off and on for a while, and is so, a very compelling fight. So they could do that fight if they wanted to. Um, and there is Francis. The tough thing is, it's a lot of slim pickings at heavyweight. Especially just right at this moment, because while there's a few other good fighters out there that you could talk about, pretty much all of them have lost. I mean, Curtis Blades is coming off of a loss. Junior's coming off of the loss to Francis. But does Jones even want to move up to fight at heavyweight? That's the other thing. So, I mean, that's... That's a very valid question. Yeah, yeah. You could do this either the Francis rematch. I still think Stipe wins. I haven't seen a whole lot of 
changes in Francis's game to actually address the issues Stipe exploited? I mean, he could. I mean, he could make those changes. I, I agree with everything you said, though. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I want to be clear. I'm not saying he can't. I'm saying I have no evidence at the moment to believe that he can't be fainted out. He added a few more kicks over his last few fights, which is helpful because Francis apparently has some pretty serious kicking power. Can he, can he handle the cardio? Can he? But yeah, I mean, the cardio, the leg kicks of Stipe, the fakes and feints being drawn out into overcommitting on his counters and then getting countered himself. That, that, I mean, that's what Stipe did was a lot of faking, a lot of fainting, a lot of getting Francis to swing and tire himself out, a lot of missing. And I'm not sure he's really dialed in a proper response or a proper adjustment in some of his habits to that. But I could be wrong because no one, for some reason, no one has tried to fight him the same way Stipe fought him. (laughs) So, who knows? And, I mean, apparently Kane might fight again but that's a big might i don't know kane's a giant question mark at this point especially with how well received his wrestling debut was right um, I mean, i'm not a big i don't watch a tremendous amount of lucha libre but i saw his match after i saw people talking about it so i looked it up you know kane's not a bad luchador as far as that goes yeah, he's still green but but ESPN says he's still under UFC contract and he plans on fighting an MMA again, whatever that means. But how much does Kane even have left in the tank at this point for MMA? That's another very valid question. I mean, I, I don't know. Only Kane does. But yeah, that was your main event. Uh, again, really good fight, uh, especially for heavyweights. Yep. So, again... To Cormier, you know, one of the greatest of all time. Stipe, the best UFC heavyweight champion ever. Uh, unbelievably important fight, I think, for both men's careers. I don't think I, especially me, did, I did not really appreciate the, uh, again, the gravitas of that fight as far as the career trajectory of both men. So, Stipe uh, really good fight. no problem giving a rematch to Francis, though. I mean, why would he? He knows how to beat him. <laughs> mm. I mean, it's still dangerous because Francis Ngannou hits like a truck. But right. and if that's the, I mean, again, that is basically the only he's basically the only heavyweight contender available at the moment. Everyone else is coming off of losses. Most of them definitive and devastating. There were a lot of hard feelings around the first Stipe fight between him and the UFC. So. I don't know if he's concerned about that, but we'll see. All right. In your co-main event, uh, Nate Diaz defeated Anthony Pettis for unanimous decision. 230-27-129-28. I don't know which round you could give Pettis. Uh, I, I uh, genuinely don't. What, what round did, what round did uh, Pettis get? I don't know. I haven't seen the, the scorecards for the fight. Except the scorecards. If I had to guess, it might be the second just because he spent the last minute or so in Diaz's guard getting elbowed, but he was on top. Only one judge gave him the... Gave him a round, I know. Yeah. A round. Two other judges gave him all three. Gave Diaz all three rounds. I gave Diaz all three. This was... Although... 
No. This is okay. I'm just looking up the score. No, no, go ahead. Um. So Bravo gave Pettis the first round. Yeah, I disagree with that, but the first round was at least the one where Pettis actually did stuff. <laughs> so again, I disagree, but um, this was. This is a weird thing from Nate Diaz about this fight because he managed to look both very evolved in some respects as a fighter and rusty. Yeah. So in a handful of ways, this was his best perform. This is one of his best performances. In a few others, it's kind of forgettable. Pettis gave did did everything you shouldn't do in an ADS fight. I mean, Pettis did what he usually does. It's it. Pettis frustrates me so much sometimes. I understand the sentiment because he can be spectacular, but he can also be like this. He's too patient. He likes to counter strike too much, and while he likes to you know wait and see what his opponent's going to do, he's getting punched in the face. Yeah, and he's losing and he's losing rounds. There's also, there's a few things that Nate did here specifically that I do want to touch on, but one of the things that I think Pettis really struggles with, and I, 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 well, I heard this articulated a little bit differently this time around, and it made me rewatch the Tony Ferguson fight and consider it from that perspective as well. Dirty boxing. He actually did okay in that, in that area this time around. What he's really struggled with was when he got put on the fence so his, his back's on the cage. He's not trying to exit. And he's at a reach disadvantage. Right. Because in that space in particular, he's looking for just a singular counter strike. And the whole time he's getting hit and not in a position to land a counter. And again, Tony Ferguson, who has, I believe, an identical reach to Nate Diaz. Now, don't get me wrong. Tony and Nate, very different fighters. But there's enough similarity in terms of generalized pressure. There's enough physical similarity in terms of, again, reach, pace, volume of strikes that this might be a repeatable and this again, this might be, you know, unbelievably niche because Pettis struggles a little bit with his back to the fence anyway. But you don't have to dive in on his hips when he's there. If you've got a bit of a reach advantage or the ability to just kind of maneuver yourself reliably over the space of about three to four inches back and forth, you can do a lot of damage to him in that space in particular. You know why Diaz ticks me off besides the general thuggish attitude? He was the the first man to shoot him for takedown last night. And he he almost got guillotined as a result. It wasn't that close. Maybe, all right, it wasn't that close, but like, come on. He shot him for the first takedown. Yep. He talks so much. He talks so much crap about things like that. And guys try to wrestle him and take him down and lay on top of him. Uh, his issue with that is is less that there's grappling and fighting, and more that all people would do is hold on to the top position and not actually do anything else. Whatever. Uh, he hit a really nice crackdown for that. He kind of gave Pettis his neck a little bit to like, okay, sell out for the guillotine, and Pettis sold out for the guillotine, and it was not that close. And then he just outgrappled him consistently oh, the entire first round. He has this in his post-fight press conference. 
uh, like Karen Bryan asked him about, or, or it might not have been Karen, but another, no, another reporter asked him about how becoming a father has changed him. And he's like, I've been five for years and firing all the mother effort. That's a good line. That's a good line. That's a good line because, you know, I just thought that was rather clever. You know, Nate, for all of the, you know, for some of the issues we have understanding him at times, he can, he's got some clever lines uh, that, that come out every now and then. I mean, besides the fact that he sounds perpetually baked on acid, um, yeah, he, he can be clever when he wants to. And he turned in a really, again, a really mature fight performance from him. He he did a lot of stance switching this fight, which... It's not hard to beat Nate Diaz. Well... It really isn't. It's not... Hey, hang on. It's not complicated. That doesn't mean it's not hard. <laughs> Diaz has lost a lot. I'm sorry. No, he ha- Don't get me wrong. He has. He has 11 losses. Yeah. He's beat, to me, I'm not saying it's easy, but he's he's very beatable, and he always has been. And again, the kind of basic, the blueprint, uh, the template. Yeah, yeah, the basic mechanics of how to be successful against him in a fight have not changed a tremendous amount over the last, say, ten years. I just don't know how, like Pettis and Rufus, having trained together as long as they have, and is. And as much tape there is out there, if Diaz would just give Diaz the fight he wants, I just don't get why they would do that. Uh, there's, a, I think, there's a couple of things specifically in this instance that play into that. One is just a lot of Pettis's habits just True. play into what Nate does. I mean, and this, and this is not a knock on Pettis; he's been very successful doing what he does. Right. But, but what the way he chooses to fight a lot of the time does leave him susceptible to some of the stuff that Nate Diaz does very well, and that's just the stylistic matchup. It's still not smart, though, to me. To kind of not... I mean, if you're a fighter, shouldn't you... I mean, your job is to figure this out, right? Your job is to figure this out, but you're also dealing with a significant amount of muscle memory, habits you've built, your own physical limitations. Is Pettis good enough to work around things like that? I'm not even... Right now, I'm not sure. It's a valid question. I don't know either. I mean, and I will say this in moderate fairness to Pettis. He broke his right foot kicking Nate in the head in the first round. So if his movement was more compromised than average, I I will give him a bit of a pass on that. Because... Not here, but it seems like he's always breaking he's always breaking something in a fight he loses. Or when he's training. I mean, <laughs> well, look, we, we, we all know that Pettis is a bit on the injury-prone side. Yeah, he always has been. Yeah, it, but the, again, Nate did like three things in this fight that really shocked me watching. One of them was his stance switching. Normally, he's a straight-up southpaw, and that's it. The fact that he started switching his stance as much as he did when he was doing it, and I know why he did it. He did it deliberately to take away the leg kicks, and it worked. Pettis tried that early, and then as soon as he had to keep trying to adjust to Nate's switching stance and angle on him, he he abandoned them because they stopped being effective. Uh, I, again, really, especially for a guy as kind of set in his ways in many respects as Diaz is, to add a wrinkle like that, 
uh, again, really surprised me watching it live. He did a lot of stance switching. He also did a lot more. Nate's always been good in the clinch. It's one of the more underrated elements of his game is getting into the clinch, fighting there, backing up, re-engaging. Because where his brother Nick likes to fight in the pocket, he likes to get in that real clo- that infighting but in infighting boxing range, not so much infighting MMA range. Nate does very well in that range in particular, and he seemed a lot more willing to exercise his grappling advantage. Again, he's not a big takedown guy for the most of the time, but he's had an advantage over that over Pettis in that fight and was willing to exploit it. So there's there's a levels of maturity to the, his game that he displayed here that did really surprise me in a lot of respects. And I've been fighting for years. I've been fighting all these new guys. Uh, Nate called out Jorge Masvidal after the fight. Reminds me how he's been every year. I am, I am fat, George Mike. Kind of reminds me of Cartman. <laughs> like, I will never, un- I will never that. Thank you. The Stockton, the Stockton, pothead version of, of uh, lanky version of Cartman. I will never unhear their vocal similarities. Uh, so, look, if they can make him and Mosfidal f- happen. Go for it. I, I, I would have, again, I think if I'd had my personal preference, Jorge would be fighting for the belt. That's not the direction they're going. And if he's not going to fight for the belt, you know, Nate Diaz and Jorge Masvidal would match up very, very well. Um, it's just that will they pay those guys what, they, what they're going to want? Well, Nate only made, I think, 250000 last night. Yeah, but Dana White said... I guess he moves the needle now. Uh, yeah. Two things about that very briefly, just because I know that quote gets brought up all the time. One, when Dana said it, it was more true. Cause he said that in what? Um, 13, 14. A few, years, like that. a few years ago. Yeah. It's been a while. And at the time he had a bit of a point. He, it well, was not nearly as inaccurate a statement as it is now. Now it's horribly inaccurate. Pay-per-view buys, but Diaz generally drew good ratings on on Fox and Fox Sports One. Yeah, he he Fox. drew good ratings. He had a. I mean, Nate was always in a position to be bigger than he was for a long time in the UFC. He had a very fan-friendly style. He had a you know an army of followers for a variety of reasons. He had. A fair num- amount of exposure, both his season of The Ultimate Fighter, which, you know, Tough Five is, for my money, the best season of The Ultimate Fighter. Okay. But if Diaz got 250k for that fight, that probably, if he got paid flat... He got, yeah, it was flat. He probably got a it's piece a of the game. But the key here, Akeem, is he's going to do it his way, either way. Get us an old-fashioned street oh, player, I'll sign up. That's no, okay. That uh, happens sometimes, don't worry about it. Um, I don't no, know. He was an auto play video. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Don't worry about it. So he probably got a piece of the pay-per-view or he probably got a, or, or he's getting a really nice signing bonus, like a huge signing bonus. Is he, I think he made a flat million for the McGregor fight, each of them. Right. So, so he's probably getting something under, he's probably getting a decent amount. Uh, probably. I don't know for sure what all the ins and outs are of fighter pay. But we know these things are real and they exist. These under the table, undisclosed amounts. So, 
And in, I mean, even if you only did get two hundred and fifty thousand, it's not like that's chump change by any stretch of the imagination. No, no. Um, not at all. But I'm sure he, to come back for this fight, he had to have got gotten paid well. And I assume if if for a fight with Masvidal to come together, it would have to be uh, worth his while, as it were. He'd probably have to get at least what he everything he got for this fight, if not more. And the way Masvidal is talking, it sounds like it would be the same for him. Or similar. You know, put those two... I know the UFC really is on this kick of only title fights headlining pay-per-views, but put those two on the main event of a pay-per-view, man. Give those two five rounds, and who's going to complain about oh, it? Oh, that's right. I keep forgetting about that um business because that's why they wouldn't do that's why they wouldn't do uh Poirier versus Diaz as a headliner right yeah something like that something like that so it wouldn't be for wouldn't be for a title all right but again if they can make that fight sign me up both guys will get paid that'll be one of I mean that won't be the highest profile fight of Nate's career he fought Connor twice and has the second most purchased pay-per-view in UFC history and for a time it was the most purchased okay so I want to know why your favorite fighter Yoel Romero is the most unintelligent fighter in the UFC he's not the most unintelligent fighter in the UFC he is hang on he is the most successful unintelligent fighter in the UFC, but he's not the most unintelligent. Okay. He's more, he's slightly more intelligent than Diego Sanchez. There's at least 20 guys on the roster. I would take Romero's fight IQ over. Then, then former UFC fighter, Hector Lombard. I said on the roster. Okay. There's again, there's at least 20. He's starting to remind me of Hector Lombard. That's an odd comparison, but okay. Um, yeah, Paulo Costa defeats Yoel Romero via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. Uh, you could score this fight for Romero. I think I did, uh, but I'm not complaining yeah. about 29 I, I scored it for Romero, Twenty, I think 29-28. Yeah, or, or I might I might have given the first round a 10-10 almost, you know? First round could have been. Uh, this was a wild fight in a lot of respects. There's two things about this before I get deeply negative because I'm we're going to in a second or two. But let me say the positive things out of this fight. One, Paulo Costa's gas tank, while not not, held up. Yeah, not exactly. Again, not again. The guy's not going to mistake you for, you know, Frankie Edgar or DJ. But for the pace these two fought at for their physiques for 15 minutes held up much better than I thought it would. He ate some bombs. Good chin. Yeah, he got tagged a lot. His face got busted up, and he was still there. His footwork and his cage cutting were a lot better this time around. Now, some of that was Romero not being good about circling as he should have, but, again, saving negativity for a second or two. When he's getting punched against the cage, he sticks his tongue out and acts like an idiot. Uh, I do want to give Romero uh, a lot of credit for his defense, actually, because I I rewatched. Uh, some portions of that fight. The majority of what Paulo Costa landed did not land nearly as clean as it looked like it did live. Romero did a lot of good 
uh, shoulder rolling, of uh, slipping punches, of moving with them to vastly diminish the power, especially when he put his back on the fence. I don't think Costa really ever hit him all that flush during those positions. And I do want to give Romero credit for adapting a little bit of his game in the sense that he's normally not a punch-with-you kind of guy. He normally will block, slip, counter, move around, and then decide to explode and go on offense. Here he did a little bit of punching with Costa. He'd, okay, block, slip, block, slip, counter, counter, block, slip, You know those kind of more prolonged exchanges, which is not something we've seen a lot out of him. And he's pretty good at it. Uh, so I do want to give him credit for that because that's a wrinkle to his game that we haven't really seen. Oh, I also forgot... Holding your hands behind your back and leaning over. Oh, God. Yeah, can we not do that, people? Please, just anyone, ever. <laughs> it's a stupid thing to do. Who do you think you are? Nick Diaz? It's stupid when they do it, too. It's just, it's not a good thing to do. Just don't do it. Like, what, what would be... I'm like, what are you doing? Look, I, I give Jorge Masvidal a minor pass when he just comes out that way to start a fight. If he just, you know, the referee says fight, he puts his hand behind his back, kind of walks out a couple of steps and then gets into his stance. Okay, that's fine. That's kind of Jorge's gimmick at this point a little bit. But in the middle of a fight, come on, guys. Just not a good thing. Um, so, again, there were some good things in this fight. This was your fight of the night. This was a wild fight as far as that goes. These two guys bombed on each other. They both got dropped. They both got hit repeatedly. They both dug deep. But when you're like me, you do wind up noticing a lot of the smaller things, or in some cases, not so small. Like both men constantly throwing themselves off balance with punches. Like both men stopping offense in odd positions for reasons that are still unclear to me. Things like Paulo Costa having a good body kick that he showed off throughout this fight. He, he landed some really solid ones. i got to be honest, too. I was not angry that Costa won the decision. Nah. Again, I I would I might have thrown something at 30-27, but 29-28 for either guy, I'm not complaining about it at all. And, you know, it does provide... I mean, Costa's probably your number one contender now. Uh, I agree. I mean, it sucks for Jack yeah, Hermanson, yeah. but... But them's the, you know, them's the breaks, as they say. I mean, in terms of if the Adesanya-Whitaker fight happens and you want to keep the division rolling, I'd be, I'd be fine with that fight. Maybe it might, other than it might still be a little too early for Costa. In some, I mean, it's early a little bit, but at the same time, he just clearly beat the number three guy. Well, not clearly, but he beat the number three guy. If he were to fight Adesanya or Whitaker next, I would not pick him to win. I wouldn't pick him to win, but I also don't think I'd be terribly surprised if he did. It's that kind of position for me. You know, when you have that kind of power, it's a big equalizer. And he's gotten a lot better. I mean, just if you compare the Uriah Hall fight to this one... He struggled a little bit to kind of corral Hall against the fence. And again, some of that might be Hall's movement versus Romero's. This was a big step up in competition, and I think he asserted himself well. He he absolutely rose to the occasion. Even if you scored that fight for Romero, it's not... Other than the silliness he did with Romero acting silly and him acting silly in response. 
It's amazing what two guys who are nearing the point of physical exhaustion will do just to kind of as kind of like a implicit collusion thing to like, okay, we're going to take a second or two here, but let's do something. To me, the fight was legit close. I don't think he deserved that type of ovation from the fans in Anaheim. I think maybe maybe they were angry at Covington, but I don't think Costa deserved that. I think they were just booing because, and this happens a lot in fights like this, where the third round definitively goes to someone who winds up losing the fight. There's just some recency bias in the sense that... I mean, even round two was close, though, Robert. It was kind of close to me. Yeah, again, I I think two is kind of the one that people go back and forth on. Romero had to take down in round two, but he didn't really do anything with it, as I recall. Nah, he didn't. It was literally right at the end of the round. It was mo- To me, that round was mostly Costa. And then round two, it's like, how do you score round or round one? So let's see if, if, if the fight could have been a draw to me, honestly. If I'm, if, wait, unless my math is wrong. If you went 10-10 in the first and then Costa takes the second, Romero takes the third, yeah, that's a draw. Yeah. It could have been it could have easily been a draw. So. I'm kind of sad this wasn't five rounds, you know? Um, oh, I, I I mean I mean I wanted this fight on the card, but you could have had it as a an ESPN plus or ESP It could have been a great ESPN main event. Yeah, but, this could this could easily main event a fight night kind of thing. But Maybe at Romero's age, it's better it wasn't five rounds. So, I don't know. Could be. I'd also... The other reason I would have preferred that, I think, is... We've now seen Costa over three rounds. I would like to at least have him go through the prep work for a five-round fight before he fights for the belt once, but... Um, I... I I mean... I would not be against him fighting for Manson. That would be a... That could be a title eliminator. Well, Hermanson's fighting Jared Cannonier in Denmark a little oh. bit later this year. Could fight the winner of that fight. It's part of the reason I think he's just going to be your next title contender is how some of the timing is set to work out for this. I mean, I, Adesanya and Whitaker might not even fight. <laughs> you know, crazier things. Yeah, they were. Su- I, I mean, they were supposed to fight, weren't they? Didn't the fight already get no? Uh, that was Whitaker and Gastelum. I'm sorry. It's okay. Look, I love Bobby Knuckles, Whitaker's but he's pulled supposed- out of enough fights that it's okay to get them confused. Wait, who was Whitaker supposed to fight? Whitaker was supposed to fight Gastelum. Right. And then Adesanya ended up fighting Gastelum. Yeah, at a slightly later event. Yeah. And yeah, and then he beat Gastelum. All right. I mixed that up. So and Again, it happens. It there's so many, there's so many fights that fall out. And it happens with Whitaker with alarming regularity. Yeah, again, much as I love Bobby Knuckles, that's happened to him a fair bit. But again, great fight. Fight of the night. Uh, we'll prob- might feature in fight of the year uh, because that's coming up. I, okay. I don't have, won't be my top fight of the year, but uh, good Sports fight. Sports betting AG has put out some betting odds for Diaz versus Moss at all. It's uh, minus 110 for both. So they're basically starting at a at an even fight. Even fight, even odds. I would pick Jorge. As much fight. as you think betting odds or what have you matter. 
For whatever value anyone wants to assign them, yeah. I pick the yes. Really? Yeah. I'm le- I'm leading Jorge actually, but would be a good fight. Uh, all right. Next up on the card, Sadiq Youssef defeated Gabriel Benitez via TKO in the first round. Um, the UFC is just kind of high on Youssef and is putting him in these kind of positions uh, to, you know, raise his profile a little bit. He's got fast hands. He's got powerful hands. It was a solid win last night. He still needs a. I mean, this was like his tenth fight. I think he's nine and one. I believe. Right. Or ten and one now. I but can't remember. Unbeaten in the UFC right now. But yeah, unbeaten in the UFC. As long as they don't unduly rush him, uh, he's a guy we are really going to want to keep an eye on. Yeah, he's a decent prospect, but he's still a prospect to me. Yeah, at this point, yeah. I mean, I I saw some people saying he should possibly be ranked in the top fifteen after this, and I I disagree. All right. I would not hate him fighting someone like, say, Mursad Bektic next. And uh, he needs to fight a tough wrestler at some point. And Did Bektic Derek, has been on a slide. By his number eight rankings last night? Eh. Against Ian Heinish? Eh. I don't know. All I right. Mean, look, Derek Brunson wins via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Um, Heinish has... A lot of potential physically, but two things happened to him here, I think, that he didn't really deal with well. One was the lack of successful wrestling offensively, and he doesn't always force takedowns, but he does need, I think he needs to be able to get them for him to be successful. Even if he chooses not to use them, if that avenue is taken away from him. In the first round. Hmm? Like he went a little too wild in the first round. A little. Uh, then Brunson started landing some pretty significant body kicks that kind of took his wind out of him. And the other thing is that Heinish doesn't seem to have a plan B right now when he fights. He has plan A, and he's good at plan A. But you do need... But if plan A doesn't work, you need something else. And right now, he doesn't really have that something else. And Derek Brunson was able to shut down his plan A and then just, you know, do... You know, I don't want to say just do enough to win a decision because that implies he did the bare minimum. And I don't think that's true, but that is, but the substance of the fight was he then did enough to win a decision. Um, Both guys got tired in the third and I'm not going to throw too much shade at him for that. They fought at a pretty crazy pace for middleweights, but Brunson is, I don't know, man. I think we've seen his ceiling and it's about this level. Uh, by contrast, I think if Heinish puts in some work, there's some development he can do that can elevate him from where he is right now. But uh, it was it was just a fight for me. Uh, unless you had something else on that one. Nope. All right, uh, moving on to the prelims. Kama Worthy defeated Devontae Smith via TKO, 4-15 of the first round. Let me say this, and this is the only thing I... Look, this was... This wasn't a bad fight. But as soon as they squared up to start fighting, anytime you get fighters actually fighting who have trained or sparred together, even if it's been a long... Even if there's been a few years between... You know, since that happened, 
you can tell who got the better of the sparring based on body language, based on decision making. And as soon as they squared up, it was pretty evident to me that Worthy had his number. Um, and that's the way it wound up playing out. The big thing I wanted to touch on for this, and this is just, <clears throat> excuse me. I know that betting odds are affected by how the money comes in. It's not just some, you know, someone doesn't just drop. They do start somewhere. They don't start even. But then, you know, as more money comes in on one party versus the other, someone becomes a bigger favorite. Someone becomes a bigger underdog. I get it. Someone who is 10 and one as a professional with two fights in the UFC. And sure, two wins, two finishes, not trying to downplay that. But that's not a person who should be a 10 to one favorite over anybody. Realistically. That's just not a thing that should happen. So anybody who bet on worthy cash that ticket, man, because you got paid. Um, and again, not a bad fight, but eh, uh, I don't know. Nothing that's really going to stick with me, I think. Um, Corey Sandhagen defeats Rafael Austin Salvia unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Corey Sandhagen is rolling. Very few people do to Austin Sal what he did. He outworked him at distance. He kicked him. He jabbed him. He went to the body a lot. He scrambled with him. They had some really fun grappling exchanges. Uh, I mean, the again, the, he's only the third person in the UFC to beat Austin Sow at bantamweight. The other two are Dillashaw and Marais. Corey Sandhagen is very legitimate. And this was, it's hard to overstate this win, man, because you do that to a guy like Austin Sow, that says a lot about where you are as a fighter. Uh, Drakkar Close defeated Christos Yagos for unanimous decision, 29-20 across the board. Yagos had a good first round, but faded. Close kept up physical pressure. I, eh, I mean, again, not a bad fight. Uh, they, uh, they got after it a little bit, but. Uh, this was top to bottom a very good card, and a lot of just stuff that on a lesser card would be talked about effusively gets a little bit lost in the shuffle here. Uh, Casey Kenny defeated Manny Bermudez via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. Um, Bermudez will not be fighting at bantamweight anymore. Uh, I mean, look at him. Uh, he's moving up to featherweight. Uh, if you like the kind of grappling exchanges that these two had going on, this is a fun fight. Um, yeah, solid enough win for Kenny, man, who's beaten Ray Borg and now Manny Bermudez in his first two UFC fights. Uh, that's, again, Borg and Bermudez may not be known all that much to the casual audience, but that says a fair bit about him. I mean, I thought he lost the Borg fight, but uh, even then, you know, to get the win officially, uh, he might be, he's someone worth paying attention to. Then on Fight Pass, Hannah Cyphers defeated Jody Escobel via unanimous decision, 30-28, 30-27, 30-27. I don't have anything to say about this fight. Kyung Ho Kong defeated Brandon Davis via split decision, 229-28 for Kong, 129-28 for Davis. Um, I scored it for Kong. I'm not sure. I think I don't really agree with giving Davis two rounds. Um, 
again, not that he didn't have some success. He had success in this fight. But I think the round in question that uh, kind of got people off was the first. And he had success in the first, but he also got dropped with a punch and then taken down toward, uh, I don't know. I just, I didn't see it as uh, Davis's fight. And kicking everything off, Sabina Mazo put Sa- Shayna Dobson through a wood chipper. Wins via unanimous decision 30-24, 30-25, and 30-25. For the record, one judge gave Mazo 10-8s in all three rounds to get to 30-24. For those of you who are terrible at math, and I count myself among those people. Um, yeah, this was... Uh, Sabina Mazo just took Shayna Dobson to the woodshed, man. There's not really another way to say that. This was a lopsided beating. All right. Um, for the record, your fight of the night was Costin Romero. Performance of the night goes to Worthy and Stipe Miocic. So good for all those guys. Jeff, anything from the prelims you want to you want to talk about? Because there was some Dan pretty Hagen. decent stuff. Dan Hagen looked pretty good. Looks like he's got a lot of upside going for him, and he picked a win. I mean, seems sort of par for the course. For Austin Sow at this point, you know, he almost seems like a, a high-level gatekeeper, as it were. I think that's where he's landed at this point, yeah. But uh, that's a good win for Sanhagen. He should, he deserves a win over a marquee opponent next. Yeah, I, I mean, he just beat the what number four guy in the division, I think. Right. Yeah, number three. Jeez. Yeah, give that man, I, I don't want to say give him a title shot because, well, Henry Cejudo is a, whatever Henry Cejudo is at this point in time when it comes he to fighting. fight with Aljamain. That's yeah. viable. I, I, you know what I want now that I saw this and I can't believe I forgot it? I want to see Sandhagen and Peter Yan. That would be uh, violence. Uh, <laughs> that would be a lot would, of violence. See, Peter Yon fought in June and beat Jimmy Rivera. So, yeah, you could easily do that fight. I know Yon and Sterling have been talking at each other, but and don't get me wrong. I, well, I'm okay with that's the fight that uh, comes out. We don't know. I mean, do we know when Cejudo might be healthy enough to come back? Uh, I think the, the last I heard after he had the shoulder surgery, they were talking about... Uh, he, you know, December would probably, if he was going to fight again this year, December uh, was kind of it. It's a little early, but we'll see. But yeah, I mean, you know, those top three guys, you know, Sterling, Jan, Sandhagen, that's a heck of a trio right there for you know the guys at the top of your division. That's a really good setup of guys. So, all right, uh, that was UFC 241. Thank you to everyone who followed along with my live coverage or read the report after the fact. I have to pimp something else here because I did something potentially stupid last night, and for once it didn't bite me in the ass. Um, Mark Radlich and I recorded live watch-along kind of alternate commentary for the main card as I was doing coverage, and I did not have a stroke. So I'm calling that a win. So you can find that on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network if you're interested in hearing Mark and I talk about the fights live as my keyboard goes off constantly in the background because I'm typing. So if you're interested, 
that's my only other UFC 241 related thing to pimp. So thank you all very much for your continued support. I don't know what I did to deserve it, but I do hope to be worthy of it at some point in the future. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Oh, oh you're welcome. Okay. Not a tremendous amount of news, but Cy, Conor McGregor. And I, I don't like talking about McGregor when he does stupid stuff, but... I am a slave to the market, and I am not a big enough influencer to believe that I in, that I have any say over it. Conor McGregor punched an elderly bar patron in the face because he refused a shot of McGregor's whiskey. Allegedly. Okay, that allegedly, that's true. We have video of the incident. We do not have audio. <sighs> I, I mean, old man, the old man could have insulted him. You know. I mean, they're Irish. I, I assume they just. That's part of how they communicate. Well, I mean, I will. I will also say this: Connor punched him, and the old guy didn't move. <laughs> like, slugged him right in the face, and the old guy just uh, did not seem to care all that much. Is is he even pressing charges? I don't know. I mean, he might not have to. They have vis- They have I mean, this video is, evidence. This is. I mean, I don't know. I, I, look, I don't like talking about stuff like this, but. To the extent that I know there's a bit of an audience for it, and I know however many people listen to us, and God bless you, by the way. Again, I don't care that Connor that Connor did this in the sense that I don't think it affects much of anything unless he actually gets arrested over it. And even then, he's not actively fighting, so I don't really care. Right. But... I mean, it's like you could suspend him but like what do you i mean is the suspension even a punishment for him at this point i don't know i mean who knows with that guy uh, connor's just I liked, what, I liked what habib was saying on <laughs> yeah and you know right i trying i mean just trying to read what he said he said something like he wants the well, ufc to Jail, I told you this guy have no class, no respect. This is very bad for sport, you know. Some things he doing good for sport, but right now he without his mind, he loses mind. It's crazy. He lose mind. Uh, he's crazy. Exactly. He's not. This is number one bullshit. You know, he be punch old man in bar. You, you cannot do this. No respect. Government have to smash him. This is my opinion. <laughs> Because I, I love that he applies smash as a verb for the government to do. I just, it's a very Khabib thing. I don't understand how you can punch an old man. Even if he punched your face like 10 times, 20 times. This is like big, big disrespect. Not only for this old guy. This is big disrespect for old people, you know? Uh, Khabib also comes from a very patriarchal society. Right. So, yeah, that's very much ingrained in him from childhood, like, no, don't do that. But um, yeah, so you know, uh, I don't know. What, I don't know what, if anything, comes out of that. But I don't, hey. I don't think he's wrong about Connor losing his mind. Connor, it wouldn't surprise me if Connor does massive rails of coke every day. And look, Dana White even said he was acting like he was on drugs during the bus incident. So those were his words, not mine. So he's acting very erratic. And I'm not saying he is. I have no proof. I'm just saying because of his erratic behavior, it would not surprise me if he was, like, coked out of his mind on a regular basis. There's a handful of 
things that could leave, lead to this kind of behavior, and drug abuse is one of them. So, yes, sir. No, I I don't disagree with you. Um, all That's right. Recreations and whatnot, but yeah, I think we can move on from that. He's got to be doing something with his time. Uh, all right. Um, the UFC released Cats and Gano over the weekend, over the last week. Sad about that. Um, yeah, me too. But I mean, at the same time, I kind of get that she's, you know, on a bit of a skid and may not. Yeah, I'm sad for it because I like Zingano kind of as a person. You know, all the stuff she's had to deal with and the yeah. perseverance she showed. But at the same time, the UFC is a machine and a business, and I can understand their logic, even if I. Eh. You, even if, even if it's not necessarily what I would do. I don't know. Like, eh. I um, more, what but else? Oh, um, bit of matchmaking, I guess. Oh. Uh, the UFC announced that they're going to try to make... It's been reported that a bantamweight title fight between Amanda Nunes and Jermaine Durandamy is in the works to main event uh, UFC 2... Yeah, I need my list. Where's my list? There's my list. Uh, this would be, I believe, to 44? No, nah, they can't do that. Which one are they? I know they talked about it. I can't, How can't... ironic is that? Do you remember what event they were talking about it? Uh, let's see. I have it right here. UFC 245, according to 45, okay. ESPN. So that's from ESPN. So, okay. So yeah, that would be the December fourteenth card uh, in Vegas. Division's not in a good spot. There's a dearth of contenders at Bantamweight. We lost Kat Zingano, lost Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate. Um, Cyborg just left. So I mean, who else do you have? Holly Holm. Is you, you know you can't just keep, lost. You can't give her a title shot every fight, you know. <laughs> well, she's also signed to fight. Um, who was it? I can't remember. Crap. Oh, she has a she has a fight signed. Right, but I mean, you know. Look, the UFC again. They want to have title fights in the main event of pay per views and. Amanda Nunes has two titles. Such a weird, such a weird thing. And there's not really another contender apart from Durandamy, even though Amanda Nunes already smashed her. A couple years ago, Durandamy looked like she was committing career suicide by refusing to fight Cyborg. I mean, in fairness, she at least committed career injury. Now she's getting another UFC. Good for her. Yeah, good Good for her getting the shot. And I hope. I imagine Nunez will do what she did before, which is destroy her physically in every possible way. Um, I don't know what you, man. It, I don't and, want. And hang on, let me. Let's also be fair. That might not be the main event. There might they might yeah, try for a double official. title event. It's not official. It's not official. But like, I almost kind of like don't want to say what I'm feeling because like when I say that. Like then, then Nunez, Nunez is, uh, excuse me, Nunez is going to get upset and she's going to lose the title, you know, because that's always how it happens. Uh, I understand the feeling. Like my feeling is, is that like, 
women's bantamweight is just in a terrible state right now. It's not in a good one. But then someone gets an upset, wins a title, and suddenly you have fresh matchups again. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, like, it, it would I mean, be a good Rose. Like when Rose beat um, Joanna, like I never, I didn't, I really didn't see that coming. Not the way it happened, certainly, and yeah, just at all was a um, yeah. long shot. I just did not. I was totally blindsided by that, and I, I just kind of felt like Joanna was going to beat everyone up for a while. And then when Rose, like when Rose was having that run, I thought she was going to hold on to the title for a while. You know. Yeah, we did both pick Andrade to beat her. Just, just, and that's not a knock on Rose. That was just the right. style matchups. But, um, like, like Rose fought Joanna twice and beat her twice. You know. Yep. Um. So we'll. So I don't want to like call the death knell of women's bantamweight. Yeah, I mean, look, look, and. Look, there's a significant difference between like, saying the division needs to go away and saying it's not in the best spot right now. It's right, which is more right. what you're doing. It's not in a good spot right now. And that's like, definitive. And I, that's just kind of emotions. I don't want to like, and, and then like you know, you say that, and like whenever like you have a really dominant champion, and then the dominant champion loses, and that that's just kind of how it tends to work out. But we'll see. It, again, it's. Just, I mean, for a lot of the time when Anderson Silva had his run, middleweight was not in the best spot. That being said, that being said, Deron DeMay fighting for the title is not that inspiring of a matchup. I think. No. I think that's really just my feeling. I'm not really inspired by this matchup. Look, the only inspiration you're going to feel for this matchup is, you know, I imagine will be, you know, the inspiration of watching Amanda Nunes inflict violence on another human being. Like the Durandame is not a terror. Well, Dur- the amazing upset. Well, look, Durandame is a very good fighter. I mean, look, I take I issue with some of her career that. stuff, but you should she, cyborg and get get the money, get the money, you know. Yeah, again, there's things about the way she conducted her career that I disagree with, but in the cage, she's a very good fighter. So I don't mean to pretend that that's not a thing. But I don't know how she's going to deal with Amanda Nunes. I don't know how anyone does at the moment. It she's just that good. It's, and it's just, I mean, and look, someone will eventually, or she'll retire. Like that's how this goes. It's so weird to me that we kind of, kind of evolve this way. I mean, look, if there were, I think if there were another viable option, the UFC would have gone with it. But state of the division right now, just there's not really one available. Certainly not. And apparently, at a minimum, not available for the date it'll they be want a the title. Not featherweight? Hmm? It'll be a bantamweight? Yeah. Because at least, that, at least that's what's been reported. Amanda still has the featherweight title, does she not? I do not believe they have taken it from her. Technically, Deronda is an undefeated champion. She never lost the title. True. She was never defeated for the title. He has a lineal claim over the title, right? We're going to close the lineal gap at women's featherweight and then retire the division. Why not? Might as well. I... 
Yeah, again, I I think they've talked about it at bantamweight. I don't know for sure, but because again, that's what they want. It's in the yeah, works, but it hasn't been signed yet. By the way, you can you you know you have all you have the history there that Deronda May was the champion who relinquished the belt. Well, the UFC would then have to acknowledge that she used to be a champion, and well, <laughs> they don't want to. So did, so did Nico Montano, who they also don't really talk about as being a former champion. He is a former champion, though. She is. That is very true. All right. Well, I I do believe that's it. So uh, unless there's something else that you wanted to talk about. That's all I have for news. All right. Let me refresh Twitter one more time. Uh, I mean, again, apart from a significant chunk of the MMA world being uh, shooken up a little bit by Kyoji Horiguchi's loss early this morning. Uh, I think that's it. So let's go ahead and get into plug. And I wouldn't mind talking about that, but I don't think anyone else really wants to hear about it. So I uh, let's get into plugs then. So what do you have to plug? Uh, okay. First up, uh, check out my latest reviews for Avengers Endgame on Blu-ray and Batman Hush on Blu-ray. Uh, also, uh, if you've been, Checking it out on Amazon. Uh, the Boys. New t- newer TV series on Amazon. Check out my review of that. And I will be going to D23 later this week. So hopefully we'll get some news and updates uh, from there. And the latest bit of news I, uh, I wrote up. Uh, Mass of the Universe Revelation announced for Netflix. A new Mass of the Universe animated series. That will be pr- written and produced by Kevin Smith. Oh, I was so interested until you said Kevin Smith. Apparently, it is going to be a direct follow-up to the 1980s uh, cartoon series and pick up where the original cartoon left off. So ha- whatever that means and how that's supposed to work, that is the approach you're taking for this show. I don't know how that's going to turn out, but we'll see. I don't know if Kevin Smith is the ideal person to be in charge of this show. I agree with that sentiment. But Howard the Duck, I think he's probably a better fit for on Hulu. Uh, Mass of the Universe, I'm not sure. Yeah, I agree with that. We'll see. But that's all I have for this week. Thank you, Robert. As for myself, uh, last week... uh, I got together with Alexis Haina and Jason Teasley to review Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark over on Damn You Hollywood. Mark didn't watch it because Mark is a big weenie about horror movies. He'd rather watch The Kitchen and then talk about that, and apparently it was the worst thing ever, which does not surprise... Horrendous. Which does not surprise me. It's why I refuse to see it. Um, If you are interested in The Kitchen, Mark Radlitz, Jesse Starcher, and Pat Mullen got together to talk about both the graphic novel that it's based on and the movie on uh, source material. So if you know where to find those, feel free to do so. About The Kitchen, there's this very weird scene in the middle of the movie. It's this really weird mistimes. Like, do you remember, like, that kind of the usual suspects, that kind of Kaiser Soze kind of reveal montage kind of thing? Yep. They do a scene like that, kind of, in the middle of the movie. Where Tiffany Haddish stands on a table and goes, it was, I'm the author of All Your Pain, it was me, Austin, now thanks for coming coming to my TED Talk. 
but it's so awkwardly done. And okay, is it is it more awkward than? I haven't seen the movie. I, I know that's the I know the scene you're talking about because I've heard people talk about it. But is it? Because I didn't think it was possible for that kind of a sequence to be more awkward than Jake Gyllenhaal on a bar in Spider-Man: Far From Home. But is it is it worse than that one? It, it, it's kind of like when they do when they do it in the Puss in Boots movie, but played I, ser- but played seriously. Like I in, have not seen the Puss in Boots movie, but if you're saying that they tried to play something from a movie like that seriously, that's got to be awful. No, no, it like it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It, it, it's totally totally doesn't work, and, and it's like why like why is this in the movie? It does not make sense. Ugh. I'm glad I missed that it's one. A, so. It's such a weird, it's such a weird, just like, like it, it's kind of like it belongs in a mystery movie where there's a mystery. Like there, there wasn't like a mystery in this film. Like, it's like, why is that there? Apart from who thought this was a good idea. But yeah, that's just kind of, that was the scene that bothered me the most in that film. So that's all I wanted to say. Fair enough. <laughs> So again, you can listen to the three of us review scary stories to tell in the dark. Uh, this week, there is no damn you Hollywood. Mark is getting together with, I forget who, for a TV party about the DC streaming service move, uh, series Swamp Thing. So you can look for, those of you who are interested in that, you can look forward to that on the Rattletch and Broadcasting Network. Um, you can, of course, subscribe to the 411 Mania Podcasting Network. We have the 411 Interviews series that Jeff Harris does. We have the 411 on wrestling with Larry Zonka and Jeremy Lambert or is it Steve Cook that shows up on that on occasion? Is the other guy? I forget. My apologies, gentlemen. I'm terrible with names. Uh, so if you're into professional wrestling, you have that over there. You have the... Uh, again, just there's a lot of podcasts we do nowadays, so you can keep up with that. Again, however you get podcasts, however you got this one, you should be able to find all of them there. So interact with the product a little bit. Always appreciate it. Even if you think it's a one-star show, just give me the one star. Come on. One star. That's all I'm asking for. All right. There is no UFC event on Saturday, so I will waste my Saturday doing something else. I don't know what. We'll be back next week right here to preview UFC Fight Night uh, 157. This is uh, Jessica Andraz versus, versus Weili Zhang from China. And, you know, that's a perfectly serviceable main event, even if they weren't kind of shoehorning Zhang in as the local for the Chinese market. That's a That's a perfectly acceptable fight. The rest of that card, um, yeah, that's a lot of, yeah. oh, for God's sake, they have two debuting light heavyweights on the main card. Why do you do this to me, Sean Shelby? Why? Ugh. Anyway, we'll be back next week to preview all of that. And then I will have coverage that will be the 31st. I think the first prelim starts at 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's going to suck for me, but okay. Uh, All right. Well, again, so that's what we'll be back for next week. Until then, on behalf of Jeff, I'm Robert. Thank you again so very much for listening. Stay safe out there and please continue to be well, be safe and behave.